This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 10 through 17. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote these words. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. As we come to this next section, uh, chapter 1, verse 10, all the way through chapter 4 and verse 21 actually forms a complete unit in 1 Corinthians. And uh, even though it uh, is going to look like Paul is shifting gears through this, these next few chapters, he actually is locked in to the very themes that he's going to start addressing right now. And, uh, and so it really does, as you're reading 1 Corinthians, it really helps to, to keep the big picture in mind, because as you get into, as it were, the, the, the trees, if you forget the forest, you kind of lose sight of Paul's argument. But if you keep the forest in mind, all of a sudden the trees start to make sense. They start to fall into place. And so Paul is dealing with um, division in the church. Now, ironically, he had just spoken in verse 9 these words, God is faithful who, through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Paul has acknowledged that God by his grace has called us into fellowship and, and yet, we'll put it this way, the presenting problem you know what I mean by the presenting problem? That is the problem that's there on the surface. That's the problem that's in front of your eyes. It may not be the ultimate problem, but it is the problem that's right there. The presenting problem is that the Corinthians have, as it were, um, hacked up the body of Christ. They've divided the body of Christ. And the divisions that exist in the Corinthian assembly seem to be based on, first of all, false views of preaching and what actually marks, quote, spiritual preaching. Uh, It also seems to be divisions driven by either too high a view of men in ministry or (laughs) too low a view of men in ministry. And the bottom line is that these divisions end up being driven by a sense of of arrogance, spiritual pride, the sense of what what we could call spiritual one-upmanship, the idea of trying to attain status and superiority within the body of Christ. And so Paul is going to to, uh, address this, and he's going to address it powerfully. Now, the question is, is is a discussion on 
division in the body relevant for us Christians in the 21st century. (laughs) I think that the issue of division is always a relevant issue. In fact, I would go so far as to suggest that even in healthy churches, it needs to be addressed, it needs to be fervently warned against, and it has to be assumed that in some degree or another, it is happening around us. So for Paul, he is going to jump right in and he begins with, but I exhort you, or now I exhort you, brethren, through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul begins, and noted the New American Standard uses the word exhort, um, comes from the uh, Greek word, which is actually a very, very common word in the New Testament, parakaleo. And there is, believe it or not, this, this particular word has a huge range of meaning. It can be everything from confrontational exhortation to consolation and comfort and encouragement. And the, the range of the word, it depends on the context. And so there has been um, a lot of ink spilled on the force of this verb that is used by Paul right out of the gate. And so what is the force of this verb? Well, well, first of all, you have to understand what's happening in verse 10. Verse 10 is the transitional point in the book. We've had the salutation, we've had the thanksgiving, and now Paul gets right down to business. This is the transitional point that actually leads right into the entire body of the letter. And so you have to understand that however Paul is going to transition into the body of the letter is going to be significant. So the fact that he uses this word should catch our attention. What about the word itself? Well, the NAS says exhort. Now, exhort is, uh, is, is a somewhat strong word, isn't it? If, if somebody said, wow, I saw Brian exhorting Jason after Bible study tonight, you might think that I was in his kitchen, right? That's an expression, okay? Um, I, was, I was in his face. I was, you know, saying something and saying it directly. What's interesting, though, is that the NIV and the ESV both opt for the word appeal. <laughs> Do you, you, you kind of feel a difference between those two, right? If you said, I saw Brian appealing to Jason after Bible study, you might think that I was trying to persuade him that baseball is profoundly better than soccer, all right? I'm appealing, right? Now, if I was exhorting him, I would just be simply telling him. If I'm appealing, I'm trying to persuade. The the differences in the words are actually pretty significant, all right? So as we think about what Paul's doing here, there's been, like I said, a lot of research on the way that this word is used in what would be called an epistolary context. In other words, remember, epistles are a form of of uh, you know, Greco-Roman writing, okay? But not just apostles wrote epistles. All kinds of people wrote epistles. There's a form to it. And a lot of times, the word parakaleo is used in those epistles. And so there's been a lot of research, and I would say that in the context, what this is, is, okay, well, it's an appeal, but it is a very strong appeal that Paul is making here. Um, in fact, I would prefer to see the, the word maybe, I urge you. Okay, And the urging here is very clearly based on Paul's prior relationship with 
the Corinthians. That's one of the interesting things about the word is this when it's used in all different kinds of contexts, there is either a personal or an official relationship that already exists with the person who is making the appeal or the exhortation or urging. And that's certainly the case here. And so I think that what's happening is that the apostle is both in an official capacity as an apostle and in a personal capacity as someone who loves the Corinthians is he is right out of the gate making, and we could put it this way, an urgent appeal. Okay? This is a forceful appeal to them. Now, I would, I would also say that notice when, when he uses the term brothers. So he's not just simply throwing out apostolic authority, I exhort you. He is actually, uh, in a sense, using an urgent, hortatory appeal, but it is both brotherly and fatherly. You know, to, you know Paul does that a lot. Both of those hats for Paul were were real hats that he wore, actually wore both of them quite comfortably. The fatherly appeal, the fatherly urging has a level of authority to it. The brotherly urging is, is very personal, it's familial. And so what Paul is doing is this, this urging is not just to um, people who need to be instructed, it is urging to a family. It's an appeal to a family. They're brothers. Of course, it's inclusive, right? Brothers and sisters. We understand it's used generically, members of the family. And what should a family look like? Well, a family, there should be unity in a family, And that unity should be based on love and respect. And so what Paul is doing is he's giving this urgent appeal, both in a fatherly and brotherly sense, and yet it is a, it is an appeal that is going to a family. It's, it's familial relationships that he's concerned about. Remember, we've said this numerous times over the years, but especially as we've, especially when we dug into Galatians, one of the primary ethical concerns in the New Testament is how we treat each other in the body of Christ. That is not just some sort of secondary issue. The heart of our sanctification is not just some sense of personal holiness and achievement in spiritual uh, exploits. The, the, the heart of our New Testament ethic is how we treat one another. And so here's Paul, and he's just reminding these people that are splintered and fragmented and, and just thinking that they're better than each other. He's reminding them, your brothers, your sisters... You belong to each other. I'm urging you, family. There, there is a, a definitely a sense of, of pathos to this. Now, notice also it is not um, as your father in the faith or anything like that. It's through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Uh, I urge you, family, through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, the tenth time in ten verses that Jesus has been mentioned. All right? You, you, you can't miss this. Paul's driving at something here, okay? And when he says through, in other words, the urging, the exhortation is through Christ. And I, I think that this is what's happening, is that the appeal that Paul is making is, is through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, remember how he does this in the, in the salutation, their Lord and ours, right? So the, our common Lord, I am, I'm appealing to you on the basis of the one who is my Lord and yours. There's a little more to it than that. The name of the Lord Jesus, which is being in, invoked here, is also invoking our Lord's character and his authority and his reputation. Okay? 
Notice Paul does not appeal for unity on the basis of his reputation. (laughs) You think it would be easy for Paul as the one who started the Corinthian church to be really concerned? You know what? If If you guys are acting like a bunch of savages with each other, that's going to be a reflection on me because I'm the one that started the church. That's not Paul's concern. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes parents fall into that trap, being more concerned about the behavior of their children because of the way it reflects on them than actually being concerned about the behavior of their children because of its impact on them. Now, Paul, Paul is not impervious to the fact that the Corinthians will have a testimony in the community and it will be either a good one or a bad one. And he does not want it to be a bad testimony, but he doesn't want it to be a bad testimony because it would reflect poorly on him, but because it would reflect poorly on Christ. That's where Paul's heart is. And so he is appealing through our Lord Jesus on the basis of Christ's character, who is, of course, the Prince of Peace the one who has made peace through the blood of the cross. He is appealing through the Lord Jesus and his name on the basis of his authority and on his reputation. And so Paul is appealing to the fact that that Christ's lordship is over his family and his reputation is both through his family and among his family. And it's that which forms the basis of his appeal. Now, here's what he is exhorting them to do. Literally, that you all say the same thing. Now, that's a weird thing to say, that you all say the same thing. Well, it's actually um, an idiomatic expression that was fairly common in the first century, Uh, ironically, especially in political literature, And the idea is is that not that you would all parrot the same thing, that you would all say the exact same words, but the idea is that you would become allies. Or uh, even, as uh, Anthony Thistleton puts it, that you would all take the same side. Uh, Paul's not interested in in demolishing diversity within the body of Christ. (laughs) In in fact, diversity is going to be a good thing, as we find out in 1 Corinthians 12. But, But what Paul is doing is he is trying to undercut all division within the body of Christ. And and in order for that to happen, everybody has to be on the same side. It's not that they're all robots saying the exact same thing. Good morning, brother. Good morning, brother. Amen. Amen. But they all are, we'd put it this way, on the same page. And um, some of the, one of the old commentators made the analogy of what Paul's getting at here that what Paul is looking for is not just for them to be in unison, but for them to be in harmony. You know, we, we actually could all sing in unison but that doesn't mean that we would all be singing in harmony, right? Amen. <laughs> I won't look any particular directions to those that are guilty of just being in unison, but cats can howl in unison, right? My dogs bark in unison. They hear, the, uh, they hear an ambulance going down 395, and they're in the backyard. And you know what they're doing? They're joining with all the other dogs in the neighborhood, and they're just howling in unison, but there's not much harmony. What Paul's after is harmony, that everybody would be on the same page. Now, it's interesting because Gordon Fee actually suggests that the call here to be of the same mind or to, be of, uh, to say the same thing, Fee actually suggests that it is, is much more specific. Instead of just sort of a broad thing that I'm appealing to you all to be on the same page, Fee suggests that there's actually a, a relation here that, that everybody say the same thing, everybody be in agreement in relationship to there not being any divisions among them. Okay. That's, that's, that is 
possible. Now, the fact is, is that the larger picture is true than the more specific picture is true, right? If they're to be on the same page, then they certainly be on the same page in terms of division, In other words, he wants them to agree, be on the same page, that that divisions within the body really ought not to be. And that's the second part of this, that there not be any, and here's the word, schismata. You know right away when you hear schismata that we have a word in English that's derived from schismata, that there not be any schismata among you. Now, we hear that word, and we think of the word Schism, okay? Schism. And we think of the word schism through 2,000 years of church history, looking back, and when we think of schism in 2,000 years of church history, we typically think of doctrinal divisions that occur within the Christian church. So, was it... um, Was it... 1066, that was the great schism? Charlie, 1066? I know you were just a kid, but... um, So we actually look at church history. We look at the big divide between the East and the West. That's the great schism. Between the Western church that became the Roman Catholic church and the Eastern church, which became the Orthodox church. We We think of schism at the time of the Reformation, right? And, of course, we think of... Um, you know, the very banners behind me that were the source of the schism, the division. I think it would be a mistake to think of this word schism in terms of 2,000 years of church history because probably what is happening is, is not doctrinal divisions among the Corinthians. Now, to be sure, they are messed up doctrinally in a number of ways, but the idea of schism actually is to be, uh, to be ripped or torn apart, right? And in fact, we sing it, right, by uh, schisms uh, in the church's one foundation, schisms rent asunder by heresies distressed. Remember that line? And the idea here is like the fabric of their unity has been torn apart. And Paul says that's, that's what you should be in harmony about, that there not be any, any tears or rips or rifts among you. Again, not just even personal conflict. I'm sure, I'm sure that there, were, there was personal conflict going on in the Corinthian church. You can't have the kind of socioeconomic um, uh, division and you can't have the, uh, the, the arrogance and the super spirituality without there being personal conflict. But again, what Paul is talking about here is this idea of, um, of their own personal individual loyalties to a specific group or a specific faction, um, those that they perceive to be the, quote, spiritual ones. So it's not personal rivalry, but seems to be rivalry among groups within the one church. It's amazing how quickly people that all claim allegiance to the Lord Jesus can start to make sub-alliances with people in the body. Loyalties based on whatever that leads to nothing but strife. This happens, and it happens over things that it should never happen over. A lot of times it happens over issues that are, that are just, it's just Christian liberty. One family chooses to do this, another family chooses to do that, and all of a sudden you've got, you know, and, um, you know, just, I mean, this is, this is public knowledge, but back a long time ago, you had a family at uh, John MacArthur's church, the Ezos, and they had done a series that had become very famous, Raising Kids God's Way. That's pretty authoritative, raising kids God's way. And all of a sudden, people started to be identified as to those who were following the Ezo model because they were raising kids God's way and then those that weren't. And it became a huge divisive issue. And um, 
Things like that happen. But all of a sudden, the alliances and the loyalties are not supremely to Jesus anymore. They are to the people that I happen to be in agreement with. Like soccer and baseball. Notice the third part. But that you might be equipped or prepared in in the same mind and in the same purpose. So Paul is saying, here's here's what I'm urging you. Here's what I'm appealing to you as a a father, as a brother, as, as one who is a representative of the Lord Jesus. I'm appealing to you through the authority and reputation of our Lord Jesus that you all be on the same page that there not be these, these rips and tears in the fabric of your unity, but rather that you would be equipped or prepared in the same mind. The interesting thing is that the word that is for equipped is, is the idea of to be restored or to be put back into its proper condition. This is a word, by the way, that's used in the Gospels for when the, um, when the disciples are repairing their nets. The idea is that you would be, uh, that you would actually be repaired, brought back together in the same mind and in the same purpose. I love David Garland says to be refurbished. That's what we as the people of God need (laughs) is we need frequent refurbishments, don't we? Okay. So the same mind, and and again here, uh, Paul is not calling for a uniformity. You understand that there's difference between division and diversity, and there's a difference between uniformity and unity. You can have unity that exists within the context of diversity, you can have unity that exists and, and, and not have everybody simply have a, a uniform view and, and, and do everything the same, say everything the same, live the exact same way. In fact, when that starts to happen, I think you probably have a cult in the making. Paul says, I want you to have the same outlook. I want you to have, I want you to have the, the, the same attitude, the same attitude with each other. I want you to think in ways towards each other that are, that are honoring. Now, at the end of chapter 2, Paul's going to remind the Corinthians, we have the mind of Christ. This is why you should have the same mind is because you have the mind of Christ. It's the spirit of God that's giving you the mind of Christ. Christians should not be at each other's throats. They shouldn't be competing with each other. They shouldn't be trying to uh, outstrip each other in being super spirituals. You've got the mind of Christ. Now, as far as this last phrase, same purpose... Just like our previous word, this word has a large semantic range, and it could be to have the same intention, to have the same mind, to have the same opinion, to be in agreement with each other. And so some commentators say that what Paul's arguing for is is to be people of, of, of the same goals or the same purposes that are connected by the truth, which, of course, I think is true, um, but... Others actually emphasize another part of this word that could be emphasizing to be of, um, of, of the same mind in the idea of, of having mutual respect and consent with one another. Whatever the actual emphasis of the word is, the, the intent here for Paul is, is obvious. It's totally clear. Be on the same page. There shouldn't be rips and tears in the fabric of your unity as the people of God. And in fact, you should share the same attitudes and the same outlooks. It doesn't mean that you agree in every jot and tittle, but what it does mean is that you have, you have the same kind of mindset 
so that you're looking out for each other. You care for each other. You have the same goals for each other. You have the same goals as the body of Christ. This, of course, would have been absolutely contrary to the current condition in Corinth where where their goals were not simply the idea of, you know what, let's press on, let's march on as the church militant in this earth, glorifying the Lord Jesus, making disciples, expanding his kingdom, whatever, doing great things for God. Instead, their goals were, you know what, I want to be the most famous guy in this church. I want to be known as the most spiritual guy in this church. I want to be known as the best prophet in this church. I want to be known as the most fantastic tongue speaker in this church. I want to be known as the highest pew jumper in this church. It was all about self-promotion, self-aggrandizement, driven by pride. So that's, in a sense, verse 10 is the manifesto, at least through the first four chapters. It's Paul's manifesto for these first four chapters. And now, (laughs) here is why Paul is so determined that this is where he needs to go with them. He says, verse 11, For it has been revealed to me concerning you, notice again the language, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that quarrels are or exist among you. And so here's why Paul is actually focused in, he's, he's, he's locked in on this issue of unity, is because it was revealed to him, it was reported to him by Chloe's people. Who in the world was Chloe? And the answer is actually simple. We don't know. She, in all likelihood, was a wealthy woman, probably a householder, probably a businesswoman, maybe very similar to Lydia in the book of Acts. And who are her people? Literally, the text just says, those of Chloe. But that expression actually is common enough to denote some kind of relationship. And so it could have been Chloe's family, it could have been Chloe's servants, or even Chloe's business associates. And so here, now now where's Paul as he's writing this? Well, he's in Ephesus. And what we know about Corinth is that Corinth is a huge trade center, huge commercial center, that actually you can you could go basically anywhere in the Mediterranean world from Corinth. And of course, one of the other major trade centers would have been Ephesus. So there would have been a lot of traffic back and forth between Corinth and Ephesus. The fact that Paul goes from Corinth to Ephesus actually just demonstrates what a common uh, route that this would have been in the ancient world. And so here's Paul in Ephesus, and he gets a visit by Chloe's people. Now, Chloe's people may have been from Corinth doing business in Ephesus, or maybe they were from Ephesus and had done business in Corinth and had just come back. But regardless of what the situation is, here's what happens. They come and give Paul a report. You can imagine Paul's having dinner with them. Probably enjoying pulled pork. Paul says, so, tell me, Chloe's people. Now, they obviously had names. How are things in Corinth? Oh, Paul, I am sorry you asked. What's going on? You would not believe it. The church is being torn apart. It's being ripped to shreds. Divisions, quarrels, conflicts. I mean... Paul, the, the church is dividing up. You know, we have, there, there are X number of, of, of house churches that make up the church at Corinth. And Paul, each one of them is competing with each other. There are rivalries going on. And Paul hears this report. Now, here's the thing. Paul takes the report as reliable. He takes the report as trustworthy. He is assuming 
not only the trustworthiness of Chloe's people, but he's also assuming that when he says to the Corinthians, I've heard this from Chloe's people, the Corinthians are going to assume that it's a trustworthy report too. You know, we hedge our bets when we tell people something secondhand. You know, so, I mean, I heard, and I know this might be the case. There's none of that for Paul. This is what I've heard. There are divisions among you. And so, Gordon Fee puts it like this. They gave Paul an earful of the real situation. What was it that there are quarrels among you? Again, the, the, the word that's used here is different than the word that's used previously, but the idea is disputes, strife, contention, quarrels. And so here's a church that is just, that is just coming apart at the seams because it is at odds with each other within the body. Anthony Thistleton puts it like this. He says, Corinth represented an especially competitive and status obsessed culture. So here's, here's the picture. Paul is there in Corinth for 18 months, labors, preaches, leads. He's got his helpers. They're doing a great job. Paul leaves, and once Paul leaves, maybe there's a leadership vacuum, don't know for sure, but as Paul leaves, what begins to happen is that all of the, all of the bad worldly habits that the Corinthians had, had imbibed just being a part of that culture now start to be just trucked into the church in dump truck loads. That old competitive spirit, that status seeking, that the, the power grabbing, the sense of trying to be important starts to permeate its way into the church. And then here's how Paul describes the disputes, the quarrels. But I say this, so Paul said, this is the report, this is what I'm telling you, that each among you says, I am of Paul, but I am of Apollos. Now I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. Now, Many commentators look at this as um, descriptive of actual parties. In other words, many, if not most commentators, see this description, I'm of Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Christ, as descriptions of actual parties. So there would have been like a Paul party and a Cephas party and a, a, a Paulus party and a Christ party. Um, Now, what's important to notice is, again, the language comes over from the political world. We would say it a little differently, but this, you know, we wouldn't say, you know, I'm trying to be politically correct here. I am, oh, I know what I'll do. I am of George Washington. I am of Lincoln. In other ways, saying it would be, I'm for so-and-so. That'd be the equivalent of I am of. I'm for Paul. I'm for Apollos. Well, you guys are idiots. I'm of Cephas. I'm for Cephas. In fact, you know, they wore little pins on their tunics. I'm for the rock. And then, of course, you had the I am of Christ group. Now... So they're akin to political slogans. I'm of Paul. So if let's just say that these actually represent actual parties within the Corinthian church. I'm not sure that they actually do, but we'll get to that in a second. Those who would say, I am of Paul, would actually be saying, I'm loyal to the founder of this church. I'm loyal to our spiritual father. I'm loyal to the Apostle Paul himself. I am for Paul. And then, of course, you had perhaps the Apollos group. And the Apollos group were like, you're for Paul? Are you kidding me? 
We are for Apollos. And of course, what do we know about Apollos? Think about, I mean, and this, this again may be, may be part of the situation. So what do we know about Apollos from Acts chapter 18? We know that he was an Alexandrian Jew who was eloquent, educated, mighty in the scriptures. Guess what the Corinthians would have valued? They would have valued knowledge. They would have valued rhetoric. They would have valued uh, polished speech, persuasive speech. So in a sense, Apollos is kind of cut out for the Corinthians in terms of who you want to be for. He would have, he would have been culturally pleasing to them. It is interesting the way that we do gravitate towards people that share certain cultural values, right? I mean, so here we are in Nevada, and let's say a new church starts up, and the guy's from New England, and he wears a three-piece suit, and he talks with a funny accent, and he doesn't hunt, and he hates guns. I mean, how long do you think he would last? probably not very long, right? In fact, some of you probably know stories of people that were just culturally so out of place in a church, you know? (laughs) Friend of mine, Steve Hall, pastors up in Port Angeles, Washington, which is near the, uh, off in the sound, and that is a huge logging area. One of the first things that happens, one of the deacons came and said, we're going woodcutting. And he was going to test his metal on whether he could cut wood. And if he didn't, they probably would have told him, you know what? Go back down to L.A., softy boy. But he made it. So you can imagine, Apollos, the Corinthians were going, that's our guy. He shares all the values that we share. He is, he's the poster child for what we think preaching should be all about. Then, of course, you have I am of Cephas. So maybe you had a Jewish contingent in, um, in Corinth. We know that there was a synagogue, obviously, there. And you have people, you know what? You guys are all messed up. Okay, so Apollos, he's an Alexandrian Jew. You know what that means? He's from Alexandria, Egypt. And what that means is, is that his Jewishness isn't all that Jewish. He's more Greek than Jewish. He's a phony. Oh, he's mighty in the scriptures, all right. But you know what? He uses the NIV. All right, the equivalent, the Septuagint. Peter, now, there is the Jewish apostle. And you know what? These Jewish guys have insights into the Old Testament that these goyim just simply don't have. I mean, and who else did Jesus say, you're the rock, and upon this rock I'll build my church? I mean, we're for the first pope, for crying out loud. That's a joke. I mean, Peter, he's Jewish. Then you have, I am of Christ. And you know what you're thinking? That's what I would have been. I'm for Christ. Corinthians for Christ. Now, the problem is, is that if this does represent actual groups, it's kind of actually hard to see why Paul would be critical of those saying, I'm of Christ. But if, if, if this is the case, what you have here would be the super spiritual ones. Yeah. Calvinists, Lutherans, Wesleyans. I'm just a good old-fashioned Christian. The problem is, is that 
if these are representative of, of, of actual parties, then as Richard Hayes puts it, is Christ is de facto reduced to the status of one more leader hustling for adherence within the community's local politics. In other words, there was nothing actually really Christ-centered about saying, I am of Christ. It was just simply a way to kind of one-up the other jokers. I don't follow men. I follow Christ. I mean, I'm so spiritual that I don't even need to listen to Peter or Paul or Apollos. I'm of Christ. Have you ever met anybody like that? (laughs) Oh, I have. I have. The Holy Spirit talks directly to me. I I don't need to go to church. I don't need... I am special. Special, all right. Now, here's another possibility. It's possible that what Paul's doing here is using rhetoric, and what he's doing is, is he's caricaturing their behavior. Okay? In other words, there may not have been really like, I'm of Paul, I'm, I'm, I'm for Paul, I'm the Paul party, and well, I'm the Cephas party. Actually, what he may be doing is just caricaturing their behavior, actually showing how silly and how childish the divisions really are, so that when he gets down to I am of Christ, he's actually probably just being sarcastic with those who are the super spiritual people. Whatever the case may be, whether these are actual parties or whether Paul is just using rhetorical device and just being sarcastic and showing them the folly, what this division does reflect is that it is more about status and power than it is theology. These weren't theological divisions. They weren't saying, those guys baptize babies, we ain't going to do that. What it was, was power and status and prestige and, and, and who could be first. It's also a demonstration of, of the individual spirit that's contrary to the idea of the community. If everybody's supposed to be on the same page, then it's absolutely contrary of being on the same page to turn around and say, I am of. I don't know what you are, but I am of. I'm for this, I'm for him, I'm for that preacher. What it is, is it's an individualizing within the community that splinters the community, fragments the community, and actually begins to make the community not a community at all. Just a collection of people who are for somebody. The divisions, of course, as we've noted in our introduction, may have been driven by some socioeconomic considerations, the haves, the have-nots. could have been rooted in separate house churches that were making claims, affirming loyalties, boasting in men. Regardless of how you actually see this fourfold grouping, the fact is is that there would have been boasting in men, uh, which of course was just a way to make themselves better than somebody else and more spiritual than somebody else. Again, any relevance to the contemporary church? Oh, I think so. I think so. Now, let me just say one thing is, if we're dealing with actually four different real parties within the Corinthian church, notice Paul for a moment does not think that either Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Christ are the ones who are jockeying for a position, trying to gain adherence and followers unto themselves. Okay. By the way, normally when that happens, normally when there is an unhealthy attachment to a man, um, I mean, sometimes there are people that promote that, you know, like Jim Jones. But a lot of times when that happens, it doesn't happen because the guy says, hey, you should attach yourself to me, not listen to anybody else but because that's the way people are. That's the way people are. Well, Paul then engages in some rhetorical questions. And by the way, these rhetorical questions um, end up serving as what would be called a reductio ad absurdum. 
That is, he's, he's going to reduce their division to, to the level of absurdity. He's going, to show, he's going to show why thinking like this leads to absurd conclusions. He's going to show why the, pre- the premise itself of being a divisive people, attaching yourself to men, actually fundamentally undermines the whole system. And so he has this question, has Christ been divided? What's interesting is that the word is not just simply divided. The idea is cut up and apportioned out. It's the idea of divided up and, and, and distributed. And so, of course, he's using an absurd picture. Because he's going to actually argue in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that the body is a unity and it is actually an indivisible unity. In reality, you can't, you can't chop up Christ. But by their divisive mentality and by their, by their spiritual pride and arrogance, that's what it looked like they were doing. Has Christ been divided, really? Do you think you guys have it and, 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 and you know, that you're the body and he's the, they're, they're the body and, and, and you're just distributing Christ among yourselves? You can't do that. And then Paul says, Was Paul crucified for you? Think about that. Was Paul crucified for you? I love the way Anthony, Anthony Thistleton puts he captures it better. It's not just was Paul crucified for you. The idea is, surely Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Answer, no. In Greek, you can ask a question and actually tell people what the answer is. Paul crucified for you? Perish the thought. So for those of you that want to say, I'm for Paul, let me just ask you something. Who hung on the tree for you? It wasn't Paul. If if, if Paul was doing this today, it wasn't John MacArthur that was crucified for you. It wasn't John Piper that was crucified for you. It wasn't Martin Luther that was crucified for you. It wasn't John Calvin that was crucified for you. Was Calvin crucified for you? It's absurd. There was one who was crucified for you. And then he asks this. Were you baptized into the name of Paul? When you, when you stood there in the river? Now, this actually, the next part is, is kind of funny because Paul has like a memory lapse. Um, which is actually quite funny. Um, I didn't, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. Well, okay, well, I, yeah, okay. Uh, you know, uh, Sevenus and Gaius, yeah, okay. And maybe somebody else, but I don't even remember because it's not even important. But so when you, the, when you went in the river and whatever, whoever the person was who baptized you, did he say, I baptize you in the name of St. Paul? No, I was baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul is going to shift gears a little bit. Baptism kind of, <laughs> baptism kind of throws him off track just a little bit. He'll get back. Okay? But... It's an interesting discussion. We'll look at it next week. But what I want to point out to you is this. First of all, in conclusion, Paul does not tell the Corinthians, behave yourselves. Stop the bickering. Be nice. That's typically what we do, right? (laughs) We're like, you know, the, the Bob Newhart video. Just stop it. Just stop it. You're being divisive. Stop it. You're quarreling. Just stop it. Be nice to each other. Don't you know? Being nice is a virtue. Notice Paul does not do that. By the way, there's no power in that. There's no power in that. What he does is he very intentionally directs them to Jesus Christ. That's going to be the point of the end of this section. 
That's going to be the point of the next section and the section after and the section after and the section after. What he does, what he sees as the remedy for a divided people is not, hey, let's hold hands. Everybody stand, cross the aisles, hold hands, let's sing kumbaya, way sway back and forth and restore our unity with each other. Don't you feel better about each other? It's not what he does. That doesn't last. Let me just say something else about that. That's stupid. I don't want to stand up and cross the aisle and hold somebody's hand. Turn around, give somebody a hug. No. I'm not a huggy person. And if I was a huggy person, that wouldn't necessarily mean I was a person who promoted unity. It would just mean one thing, that I had no sense of personal space. It's all it would prove. Paul goes deeper in healing a divided church. What he does is he points them to the only true foundation for real unity, which is Jesus Christ. That's what he does. No tricks, no moralism, no little thing to, to make you kind of feel better about the sap sitting next to you. Points them to Christ. Now, what are some lessons for us? I just have just a few things I want to point out, and I'll try to be brief. Number one, why wasn't the report from Chloe's people condemned as gossip? You ever wonder about that? Well, I think Chloe's people weren't just telling Paul so that they could tattle on the Corinthians about how rotten they were. There was concern over the spiritual health of the church and the reputation of Christ. The Corinthians' behavior had become unbecoming of the gospel, so unbecoming, in fact, that it was appropriate for them to report it to one who could do something about it. Sometimes we become so hypersensitive to some of these things. So here's a good test. If I say something to someone, let's say I'm one of Chloe's people, And there's Paul. How are the Corinthians doing? Here's the test. Am I willing for that person to then turn around and go do something about it directly and implicate me as the source as to why they're there doing something about it directly? If I want to make sure I stay anonymous, I should probably keep my mouth shut. If I actually don't want them to do anything about it, I just want to tell them I should keep my mouth shut. But if I know the person will act and I'll be implicated in the process and I'm good with that for the sake of their souls and for the good of the reputation of Christ, then open your mouth. There has been a lot of sin that goes undealt with in the body of Christ Because nobody has the guts to confront or report. Number two, the divisiveness was a serious problem when it shocked Paul. The worldly mentality of the Corinthians had encroached on the church and they had taken the low road of status and competition and power and spiritual one-upmanship. Don't ever think, don't ever think that Division is just okay. Now, Paul's going to say later, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that it's actually necessary for divisions to exist among you so that we know who's approved. Okay? So in a sense, not all division is, 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 is ultimately bad. But here's the thing, is that people, I'll just, I'll just put it bluntly, people like us, you know the types I'm talking about, We sometimes justify division for the sake of truth in ways that dishonor the Lord Jesus Christ. There are times where division 
is just bad and sinful. Which leads me to diversity versus division. So remember, for the Corinthians, it's not about theology. It's not about doctrinal perspectives. It's about pride. It's about power. It's about status. But what we need to keep in mind, because we're Americans, we don't, we don't, we don't suffer too much, at least, you know, us. We don't suffer too much from this status, pride, power thing because we're populists, you know. We're, um, you know, we're, we're Andrew Jackson Democrats, okay. We're every man, we're Americans. Everyone's equal, right? There is a sense of egalitarianism spread right across the board. And if you went around trying to tell, prove to everybody how awesome you were and how much better you were, you wouldn't have any friends, But here's the problem, is that that idea of power and pride and status may not be what drives us socially, but it can be what drives us theologically. In other words, we can be the kind of people that have a theology that becomes a source of pride and of spiritual one-upmanship contests. And I will tell you, again, people like us are especially prone to a kind of arrogance which is absolutely contrary to the very theology that we say we believe. So, I stand before you unashamedly, I believe in the doctrines of grace. But I believe in the doctrines of grace, not because I'm smarter than the other guys I went to seminary with, but because of the grace of God. And so if it's the grace of God, then I can't boast about it. And yet, how many of us boast about our our superior theology? Our lives may be a train wreck, but we've got better theology. Luther, while he's still alive, people are calling themselves Lutherans. All right? This is what Luther says. What's Luther? The teaching's not mine. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name. I like that. I like that. Of course, at times, labels are necessary for theological dialogue. But we need to watch out for spiritual pride. And so I would say in order to watch out, we need to, one, be clear on what are essentials and what are secondary issues. On essentials, be tenacious. On secondary issues, be gracious. All right? There's a time to be tenacious and there's a time to be gracious. Be humble. The surest way to avoid the sin of the Corinthians is to be humble. By the way, let me just tell you, humility is not uncertainty or even timidity but rather it is being respectful and kind to people who disagree with you. Now, we live in a culture where the idea is is that if you don't agree with me, you must hate me, unfortunately. But we know that's not true. We know that we can remain loving and respectful and humble and yet have legitimate disagreements with people. You want to avoid the the, the, the arrogance and hubris of the Corinthians, then then maintain a humility. And then finally, without condoning error, realize that there will be diversity and humbly accept that diversity. Be charitable. Mark my words, lack of charity and lack of humility will always lead to division. Charity and humility will promote authentic Christian unity. Unity. And so, may God help us. May God help us to humbly accept that diversity. There are going to be people in the body of Christ that you don't see eye to eye on on certain things that are important things. I'm not saying for a minute things aren't important. But you know what? Those don't have to be the things that divide us. If somebody tells me Jesus isn't God, goodbye. 
Somebody tells me they're justified by their works. Goodbye. Somebody tells me that their children are covenant children. No, you're wrong, but I love you. And they would say, eh, you're wrong, but I love you. Know how to make those distinctions. It is for lack of making those distinctions that there really is so much division in the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. And we pray that where we need to be corrected, you would correct us. We pray that where we need to be urged on to being on the same page with people, that we would would receive that from you. Father, we are so quick to justify ourselves. Forgive us. We are so quick to plant our flags. Forgive us. And we pray, Father, that you would bind to our hearts the diligence to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.